the ninth episode of the Historic Prison Podcast, hosted by myself, Charlie Gordon, and my good friend, Jonah Howe. Jonah. Hello. Hello. Okay, we are ready to go. Um, For today's history section, we are absolutely delighted to be joined by renowned historian, MBE, Dan Snow. Thank you very much for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. Your help is very much valued. Thank you so much for joining us today. Um, So on today's episode, we're going to be looking at the Battle of Britain. The Battle of Britain taking place starting on the 10th of July 1940, when Hitler turns his attentions to the British Isle, leaving leaving Western Europe aside. But first, we're going to need a little backstory, some exposition to how we get how we get to this place. So, Charlie, I'm going to hand over to you. How does Hitler deal with Western Europe so quickly? How does Western Europe fall without a fight? Yeah, that's that's a good question, Jonah. And well, firstly, to start to kickstart war, he invades Poland um, using a new strategy um, developed in Germany called Blitzkrieg, lightning war. So I just want to ask Dan, actually. So why was Blitzkrieg so important for Germany? Well, uh, good to see. uh, Thank you, uh, guys. Good questions. So, uh, well, I guess it wasn't. It wasn't Western Europe fell. We should say it was a bit of a fight. Actually, there was quite a lot of fighting in France. Uh, and um, oh, hang on, my daughter's just coming in here. Yeah, almost. But well, no, yeah, I'm just on, on a on a podcast actually. Um, so, uh, but but yes, this what has come to be known as Blitzkrieg. Although part of that was the German uh, propaganda. They liked to pretend that they'd kind of reinvented warfare, and it was actually this completely dominant, amazing thing that uh, they completely discovered. It was just a very effective way of all arms warfare that had been partly pioneered by the British at the end of the First World War, using aircraft, talking to uh, fast vehicles, armoured vehicles, tanks, um, moving forward with infantry and support, um, mechanised infantry and trucks, but also old-fashioned horses a lot as well. Um, basically, um, the uh, uh, the German uh, armour, German infantry looked fast-moving uh, with aircraft in support, aircraft acting like kind of mobile artillery. So rather than dragging big guns that get stuck in the mud, you can call in airstrikes, which is very, you know, very modern concept that you get today in, for example, the second Iraq invasion in the Italy to uh, Germany. And then there's a big problem because the French army and the French and the British army got more tanks, they got more men together. They, 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 it's it's a, a vast problem. How can Hitler solve this problem? With these Western allies, um, and the way he does that is a is a he embraces a plan for a, a relatively junior general who suggests that they attack through a very unusual part of of uh, the German German French Belgian border Luxembourg border, which is called the Ardennes, very thick woods. You race to a place called Sedan, you cross the Meuse at Sedan, and then from there you get to the Channel Coast quite quickly, and you basically trap the British French armies into distinct groups, and it worked perfectly, like just a lot of luck involved. It was the longest traffic jam in history as the German forces started to move through these narrow woodland and, and hillside roads, but it does, it works, it surprises everyone, and it catches everyone off balance, and the result is a catastrophic defeat for the Western Allies. Yeah, well, at this point, yeah, France has fallen, um, and the puppet state of Vichy France in the south has been set up uh, Led by uh, General Philip Patan. So, I just want to so let's talk about the Battle of Britain now. So, at this point, by the late summer of 1940, most of Europe was in Germany's hands. Um, a plan was hatched by, um, uh, but the plan was hatched to sweep uh, away Hitler's final enemy, Britain. So, it was codenamed Operation Luftwaffe. Um, and uh, to win control of the skies of, uh, of England, um, they launched uh, a huge attack um, from the air, uh, led by um, Chief of the Luftwaffe, Hermann Goering. So, Dan, um, what did this sort of cat and mouse game um, between the RAF and the Luftwaffe um, really result in, would you say? Do you think so, it- so, so, this was the fact they need they got they have a problem with Britain, right? They've got to knock Britain out of the war. Hitler doesn't want to fight Britain. He doesn't care about Britain and its uh, empire. Uh, he is interested in 
is interested in carving out empire in Eastern Europe, in in, in what is now you know, the Russia, the, the Soviet Union, as it was. So the trouble is, he's got to deal with Britain now. There's different ways of dealing with Britain. He hasn't got very, he hasn't got much of a navy at all, so he can't engage. He can't he can't invade Britain particularly. He certainly can't invade Britain unless he's got control of the skies, because conceivably, if he's got complete control of the skies, you can negate British naval power with your own air power, like you can. You know, drop bombs and torpedoes on British ships as they try and stop your ships crossing the channel. Um, so before you do anything, you've got to get air, you've got to get air superiority. Also, with air superiority, what you can do hopefully is get air superiority and just terrify the Brits into surrender. You know, look, we're just cruising around above your home country, bombing things at will, like dropping bombs on various things. Um, and um, and you know, we just the, the, that would be a situation that Winston Churchill and the British could not have tolerated, right? So. You, you can't, so so, so that they launched a plan for the Battle of Britain, not entirely sure which strategy they're going to follow, but if, knock out the RAF, get control of the skies, and then make the decision. Do you then bomb London to bits, hope that the British will make peace, uh, get rid of Churchill, or, or do you actually try and launch a full-scale invade, invasion? So that from the beginning of the Battle of Britain, so they're a little bit confused about their strategy. Are they destroying like anti-invasion defences? Are they destroying the ability of the RAF to... Uh, to stop an invasion, or are they going for kind of targets that will just degrade Britain's ability, like degrade Britain's ability to want to fight on in the war? So there's a bit of there's a bit of I don't know there's a there's a bit of confusion really right at the beginning of the German plan, but the Germans do launch an attack first of all kind of on uh, on coastal shipping, then they move to the famously during the middle phase of the battle, of Britain, they move to the airfields for the RAF, and they try and smash these airfields. The problem is. Airfields are hard things to bomb. Like, how do you, there's a huge field. There's no concrete runways in those days. They're all grass strips. If you drop a bomb on a runway, a bulldozer comes along, fills it in. And Spitfires and Hurricanes are able to take off hours later. So it is hard to blow up an airfield with the, with the technology the capabilities they had at that time. They had the bad intelligence. They were, the airfields they were attacking were often the wrong airfields. They weren't attacking radar stations. So it, from the beginning, the German German air power was not wielded as cleverly as it could have been, and by contrast, British air power was wielded brilliantly by Sir Hugh Dowding, the, uh, the commander of Fighter Command. He thought for years and years and years, how do you stop bombers attacking Britain? He had a whole system. He basically invented an early, early sort of precursor, if you like, almost to the, the internet, an extraordinary network of information that flew that allowed information to flow up and down sideways. Um, and so the RAF were brilliantly prepared. They were fighting over home territory. They had fantastic machines in the Spitfire and certainly extent the Hurricane. Uh, and they were light years ahead of the Luftwaffe in terms of uh, their their kind of doctrine. They knew exactly what they were doing. Yeah, I think a, vic- a British victory would, sorry, a win over Britain would be monumental for Hitler. He doesn't initially want to engage any war with Britain, like you said. Um, if Churchill agreed to join Hitler um, and their Nazi empire. Hitler said that he'd even allow Britain to keep their overseas territory to allow the British Empire to still exist. Um, But when Churchill makes it clear that that's not what's going to happen after the we will fight them on the beaches, we'll fight them on the landing grounds, we will never surrender speech. um, Hitler makes it clear that he will he will win over Britain. He says in a speech, um, no, he will achieve what Napoleon could never do. He will he will win the British Isles. And I think that's really, it really shows his determination to take this land, which wasn't ever, you know, his real goal. So then, Charlie, we come to the Blitz yeah. of London and a real boast of the Luftwaffe power. Talk to us about that. Yeah, yeah. So I just want to ask that: What do you think Hitler's sort of intention and thinking were uh, behind the Blitz? So we, what you got to think about with air power is it was quite it was in its infancy. No one quite knew. You, you haven't had, of course, the atomic bombings that forced Japan out of the war. You, you, you just you got you got an example from the Spanish Civil War, Guernica, for example, which uh, was blasted in a gigantic terror raid by German aircraft operating with Franco's uh, forces in the Spanish Civil War in the late 1930s. That looked like it was pretty effective. You smashed the town to pieces, tri- people retreated, and it sort of degraded the will of the, the, your enemy to fight on. You know, It led to um, 
it, it led to uh, significant results in the same way that when the Luftwaffe attacked Warsaw in 1939, uh, it, when it, after it blasted Warsaw, Poland surrendered soon afterwards. Same with Rotterdam. You attack Rotterdam a day later, the Dutch surrender. You destroy. They destroyed the fuck destroyed old Rotterdam. So it's thought this could be like a secret weapon. This is like, oh, you've got air power. It's great. You just smash things, and they, uh, and then everyone gives up. So what is interesting about the Blitz, particularly first on London and other cities, there was a sense in which it might. If you could use air power, you drop enough bombs, you break enough buildings, you might just persuade people to give up the war, stop fighting. What we now know, of course, is that civilian population's ability to withstand air bombardment, you know, uh, was legendary. Like, so you look at Hamburg or Dresden or Berlin, you know, these Stalingrad, these cities were completely destroyed, but didn't force their respective um, power out of the powers out of the war. So, so he thought there was a there was a sense in 1940 if you bomb a town hard enough, bombs to be hard enough, it might just magically achieve your your strategic you know ends, and and so you could so that the idea of moving Hitler was getting frustrated, Germans getting frustrated, the attacks on the RAF seemed to be working on their airfields. So maybe if you attack London, you you could you might you might change the kind of political calculus, and also you have to you have to get these RAF fighters up to protect the capital city, right? So the RAF fighters being all slippery, they can't shoot enough of them down. Well, if you attack London, they're all going to turn up. And their idea was they'll turn up over London, you shoot them all down over London. London's the, the kind of the bait. Uh, and that is the, that is the you know, German thinking around the switch to attacking London on the 7th of September and the days that followed. Um, and the raves, the 7th of September was the first day of the Blitz, effectively. Yeah. Uh, the Blitz would then then went on for months and months and months. But um, I also set my voice now playing guitar. All of you, can you play guitar in the other room? Thank you. Nice one. Uh, so, uh, yeah, so, and, and then it grew to a climax on the 15th of September when a gigantic German air raid uh, flew up the Thames. It took terrible casualties, and the Germans realised the RAF was not defeated. And in fact, London, rather than being the bait, it might be a trap. Yeah, I mean, it, it's this kind of war by attrition kind of philosophy. Can we bomb them into surrender? Can we bomb them into submission and try and win the war swiftly? And the answer was obviously no. But do you think? that a lack of structure uh, under the leadership of the Luftwaffe was the reason um, for this, perhaps the lack of um, careful planning, perhaps, um, of where think, they were. Well, yeah, that's a really good point. You know, there's a funny thing about the Battle of Britain, which is the Brits, like, think of ourselves, like, you know, have a go here, like, amateur, like, amateurs, sort of gifted amateurs who sort of turn up on the day and, and smash out the park. And the Germans, we think, are, like, careful, methodical, um, you know, pen-pushing, unimaginative people. And in fact, in the Battle of Britain, those two stereotypes were completely inverted. So the Germans were kind of heroic amateurs who just believed that, you know, with a good enough aircraft and and, and good enough spirit, uh, you just send these brilliant young aces up in the sky and they'll shoot down a load of Brits and, and good things will come as a result. It's kind of this tactical, you just keep keep having tactical wins and eventually the strategy will sort itself out. The Brits, on the other hand, had particularly had very different ideas. You know, they 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 wanted uh, they were very careful with their resources. They had meticulous um, ideas about exactly uh, how uh, Spitfires and Hurricanes should attack these bombers. So yeah, so the Luftwaffe had a, had a very chaotic approach to um, to fighting the Battle of Britain. They were unsure exactly what they were trying to achieve. They uh, they didn't have the right equipment. The Messerschmitt 109 did not have the range. It couldn't really fight that long over London. Once you take off from Calais, fly all the way up to Thames Estuary, doesn't, it doesn't have much time to hang around. Um, they, they, they changed targets. They changed their, they changed their, um, you know, the focus of their approach. Whereas the Brits never changed their focus. The Brits knew exactly what they were doing. They were, they, every time they took off, their job was to make the enemy pay an unacceptable price for in, entering British airspace. So it was shoot down bombers. Land, refuel, rearm, and then and then take off again. So, um, so yes, the British benefited from from careful and considered leadership. The Luftwaffe leadership was was wild. Yeah, yeah. So, well, soon the Luftwaffe was seriously starting to lose ground, and was forced to switch from daytime attacks to night raids. Um, and although these were far, their planes were less likely to be shot down. Um, uh, so during the Blitz, which lasted until May uh, May May sixteenth, nineteen forty one. Um, London was bombed pretty much every night, which resulted in kids being evacuated to the countryside. Um, 
But the British remained unconquered, as you said, and Hitler was forced to admit defeat for the first time since the war began. So this is quite significant, obviously, because, you know, Hitler up to this point has been completely bulldozing the entirety of Europe. He's taken France, he's taken Holland, he's taken Belgium, he's taken Poland. Um, I think he's even taken Norway and Denmark at this point as well. Um, and this was his first serious loss. I can basically agree with you, buddy. It was very significant. Yeah. And one senior German field marshal in Soviet captivity at the end of the Second World War said that had been the Battle of Britain was Germany's greatest defeat in the war. Yeah. Uh, it was. It's. It's very hard. Britain. It's. It's hard as Napoleon found, as Kaiser Wilhelm found, as Louis XV and six, fifteen uh, particular found. It is quite hard to knock Britain out of a war in Europe because if, if Britain has overwhelming naval superiority. And and now you know air superiority over its own uh, over its own landmass as well. So why did Hitler invade the Soviet Union? Well, you must be absolutely mad. The reason Hitler invaded the Soviet Union is why, why Napoleon invaded the Soviet Union, uh, Russia. It was an easier option than building a massive fleet and doing the hard work. And the, the you know it could have taken a decade to build a large enough fleet uh, or potent enough uh, air wing to actually across uh, the channel reliably and capture Britain. Uh, it was actually an easier option, although it seems crazy because we now know that it resulted in a war in which millions of people died and would eventually lead to the destruction of the Third Reich entirely, but it seemed like an easier option to march on Moscow. So it was a it was a disaster for Hitler. It, it was a disaster for Luftwaffe. The Luftwaffe lost lots of key pilots. Um, yeah. it, uh, it, it, the British had a tactic of, of, of taking experienced pilots off the front line and giving them training jobs. Luftwaffe didn't do that as much. So a lot of Luftwaffe's very, very good fighter pilots would, would end up killed or captured in the Battle of Britain. So, and so it was a it was a you know it was a disaster. It was it was a great it was a great reverse for the Third Reich. Yeah, well when you mentioned obviously Hitler uh, invading the Soviet Union, um, and we discussed uh, with two brilliant historians the other week, Dr. James Rogers and Dr. Ian Johnson, uh, about the Nazi-Soviet pact and how that sort of partitioned Poland uh, between the two and enabled Hitler to not have to fight a war on two fronts, which was pretty much Germany's biggest mistake of World War I. Um, so, and when, when, when Hitler decided to turn on Stalin um, in Operation Barossa, what do you think the... Uh, how do I say? How, what do you think the significance of Hitler's attack was um, for Germany as a whole in terms of the war tide, uh, in terms of the tide turning on Europe? It was a huge. It was hugely significant. Yeah, well, um, Germany, yeah. Oh yeah, exactly. Yeah, oh, it was hugely Charlie. It was. Um, it was one of the great decisions, one of the great moments of the of the 20th century. Uh, it was a moment that would see two totalitarian criminal states pitted against each other in total war, a war that would involve some of the largest battles, the largest battles ever fought by human beings, millions of men, thousands of vehicles, guns thrown against each other in unimaginable conditions, both sides guilty of monstrous crimes, Nazi guilty of genocide, Stalin guilty of machine gunning his own troops when they tried to run away. Uh, it was so-called blocking detachments. It, uh, unim uh, like unimaginable conflict was about to be rained onto Eastern Europe. Uh, the civilians, tens of millions of civilians, would be killed, uh, assaulted, brutalized, starved, uh, and it would end in the either the total victory or defeat of one of the two systems: communist, Stalinist Russia, Stalinist Soviet Union, or, or Nazi Germany. In the end. It was Nazi Germany that the Soviet, as the Soviet troops advanced towards Hitler's uh, final headquarters, Hitler shot himself yeah. in the beginning of 1945. So, spring of 1945. So it, it was, and and with catastrophic consequences for the German people. So Hitler's dream of expanding Germany actually ended up in Germany occupied, denuded of its factories, its people brutalized, uh, partitioned for generations. Um, and so it's a, it's a huge moment in, in 20th century history. Uh, do you think that the fact that Hitler's sort of ideological, I don't know how to say it, but do you think because he was so ideologically driven, the fact that he somehow thought that um, the Aryan Germanic race were far superior than the Slavic race, do you think that played a big part in terms of um, his invasion of the Soviet Union, the fact that he thought that he could bulldoze through in six weeks? 
Yeah, they, of course they they well they believe their own publicity about Blitzkrieg, uh, which we, we talked about before. It was a Blitzkrieg was a it, it, you know it's, it, it was a a very fancy spin given to an effective but but not not a kind of revolutionary or unstoppable military phenomenon. Um, they believe their own spin. They believe their tanks just as they've advanced from Luxembourg to the Channel Coast in a record number of days. Uh, they thought they could advance from the from the, the German border with uh, the Polish border with. The Soviet Union all the way to Moscow and St. Petersburg and Leningrad. Uh, they were wrong. Russia's bigger. The roads are worse. Uh, there's there's a whole bunch of logistical reasons why it, that plan was never going to work. Um, and even so, though, they did get to the outskirts of Moscow. They, they got so close in December 1941 that Stalin was thinking about leaving Moscow. Uh, an amazing moment. Another great turning point. So it's a, it's a kind of a hugely dramatic thing, but it was... He also, yes, and he also agreed believed that the, the that the like Philip II of Spain launched in the Spanish Armada. Sometimes you sort of leave a bit to luck. You know what was great about D-Day, for example, the Allied invasion, not much, not much was left to luck. They, they just assumed that they have to anything that they'd have to they'd have to do everything on their own account. Uh, whereas uh, Hitler's like, ah, oh, just kick the kick the front door down, the whole rotten structure will come crashing down. The Slavs are inferior, the communists are inferior. Uh, Stalin was, you know, Stalin was a rubbish leader. Um, if you're if you're depending on those kind of things happening, they're outside your control. You are in the hands of fate. Well, yeah, as you as you mentioned, like it's, it's incredible how close Hitler was, and you know, he was in to get to Moscow, um, and he and he almost took it after after a good four months of warfare. But obviously, once the Soviet Union's great ally came along for the winter, things started to go horribly wrong. Um, what do you think the effect of you know the winter really truly had on on the German army? What was the winter was devastating for the German army. The German army wasn't prepared for winter. The, particularly the troops from Siberia that were spirited across the Soviet Union and counterattacked outside Moscow in December of 1941. They were far better prepared for winter. German vehicles were not winterized properly. It, it, it was um, winter was catastrophic. Uh, the um, the, uh, the young men didn't have the right clothing. Uh, it was just terrifying. Um, but it should also be said that the Soviet troops fought with extraordinary tenacity, and uh, it was just a. I know if, if you could name somewhere you know, on a planet Earth at a certain time where I would not have wanted to be, it would have been around Moscow in no. November, December, January 1941, 42. Just absolutely terrifying, just brutal warfare, shockingly cold temperatures. It's impossible to see how anyone survived, frankly. No, no. I mean, at this, at this point, this was one of the coldest winters in the history of, I think, of the Soviet Union, Russia as well. This was, this was catastrophic for the German army and probably um, the most significant uh, moment in the state that Hitler made, which turned the tide of war against uh, the Third Reich and overall um, led to this, led to the defeat of Germany and. The suicides of Hitler and his his, his henchmen, as you mentioned. Um, okay, so we've gone into detail into the Second World War, certain battles, and how the tide turned for Hitler. Because up until this point, like you've mentioned, really since 1933, anything Hitler's wanted, anything Hitler's attempted to do, he's been allowed to go and do it. But that all changes with the Battle of Britain and the Luftwaffe, like you said, are beaten by the RAF, despite being heavily outnumbered, and then the collapse of Operation Barbarossa and the failure of the capture of the USSR. Dan, thank you so much for coming on. We really value your time. We appreciate it might not be the, the most convenient That's thing to be. do right now. Yeah. So thank you very much. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Thanks for coming out with my daughter intruding on everything. That's very kind of you. Good luck with it all. Good luck with this project. Thank you very much. Moving on to today's economic section of the episode, we are once again joined by Sho, who helpfully talked us through all the latest economic news last week, and we're going to do the same again in today's episode. Hello, Sho. Hi, Joe. Hello. So, Sho, um, where should we begin? So... You might have heard a lot in the news recently about U.S. bonds and how they're rising. So can you explain to us what this means? What, what does a bond mean? What does a treasury yield mean? All these terms that we're hearing. Explain to us. Okay, so treasury yields, also known as uh, bonds, are 
one of the safest um, investments you can sort of invest in. They, you're essentially giving a loan to the government so they can sort of, um, and they use that loan to finance like public spending or fill holes in their right. budgets or whatever. And you expect a sort of yield, a percentage yield back after say one year. And also you can hold um, a, a sort of government debts for around one month to even 30 years. But the most popular um, sort of government yield are the 10 year, um, 10 year treasury yields, uh, which is basically the most traded and like most liquid and most popular. So sort of you hold it for 10 years. So that's that's what we're seeing rise because of because of the um, signs of U.S. economy recovering quicker than expected, and of course the reflation trade that we mentioned last week, with that 1.9 trillion investment that the Biden administration are putting into the U.S. economy. So yeah, that's why essentially the U.S. the U.S. Treasury yields are rising. Okay, what does this mean for, for the markets? So, as I said before, these treasury yields are sort of risk-free. And if we see this continuation of it rising, um, it sort of casts a question onto the equity stock markets. Uh, why? Because um, if you can hold an asset risk-free that receives around 2% um, back of your investment, uh, you will need to be heavily compensated for taking exposure into riskier assets like um, stock market. So we'll sort of see a question in bigger firms and conversations being had with their portfolio managers. And it would be like, well, you know, are we going to take more risk uh, to reach our like annual gains and targets? Or can we allocate more of our portfolio to these risk-free treasuries? that are backed by the US government and essentially risk-free. Okay, and but however, firms sticking with the you know, equity markets rather than allocating more of their portfolio into like these risk-free assets. Okay, last week we mentioned about the start of 2021 and what it's meant um, for the global markets, for the currencies, um, as of course, a lot has changed since the start of 2020. We're, rolling in vaccines, got new leaders in multiple countries. So show, in your opinion, talk to us, how do you think the markets will look like throughout this year? As we mentioned last week, there's been a rise in inflation rates. And I think it all depends on how fast the inflation will change in prices. For example, if there was a, hot, um, a sharp rise in inflation pressures, this has decreased the revenue of companies as input costs rise. Uh, input costs rise. Uh, input costs being like uh, material costs or labor costs. So therefore, if revenue do decrease, then the overall valuation of a company will also decrease. With also with that being said, we may be likely to see markets respond with a less with less fears of of deflation and you know that confidence and growth and uh, rather than the high inflation that we're seeing so that's sort of both sides of the argument kind of different scenarios the market could respond to it depend all depending on how fast inflation will change basically last um, week when we took a look at the cryptocurrency markets bitcoin was on a rise can we say the same thing this week Yes, definitely. Uh, we've broken the $50,000 mark. Uh, we're now approaching sort of $60,000 mark. I, I don't know. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if it's, if people are looking at the 100000 mark. Uh, we could get there. There's definitely potential. As we see um, big banks like JP Morgan, Morgan Stanley, uh, looking to Bitcoin and consider Bitcoin. However, I do I see it very difficult for banks uh, to, I don't know, pitch 
Bitcoin or cryptocurrency to clients as, for example, for assets like um, the equity markets and uh, the currencies like the US dollar is backed fundamentally by interest rates, um, GDP of a certain country, political uh, events and all sorts of fundamental ideas. And it's backed by all these things. But when you talk about Bitcoin, there is no sort of fundamental thing you can back Bitcoin and sort of pitch clients about Bitcoin. So I find I find it be really hard for um, banks to sort of pitch the idea of Bitcoin. I don't know. You could probably say about the only thing you could probably say is about supply and demand levels about um, of Bitcoin. So I think it'd be really interesting how banks incorporate uh, Bitcoin. Rather, um, it may be uh, Bitcoin, they use Bitcoin as a form of transaction for fees, maybe, uh, as ultimately Bitcoin was made originally um, to, for transactional purposes yeah. to send Bitcoin. Okay, what about the UK markets? Let's look at FTSE 100. So those of you who don't know who the, what the UK FTSE 100 is, it is basically a top 100 company traded on the London Stock Exchange. Um, it's, it's basically an index to see the overall stock market of the UK. Uh, we've seen it sort of lose steam. It's hitting a resistance around the 6,800 mark. Um, again, same with the US bonds. UK bonds are also rising. Um, same with uh, British inflation, as we've all been on a lockdown for around three months. And we saw more consumers spend uh, on food and other consumer goods. So therefore, rising British inflation. Uh, yeah. So as I said before, um, there's a general inverse in equities and yields. As stock has to offer, uh, as stocks have to offer a return at least as high as these risk-free yield um, yields. So yeah, that's why we've seen sort of the FTSE 100 lose steam a bit, as we said before. Um, with the UK bonds also rising, there's also uh, there's normally generally an inverse effect as stocks have to offer a return at least as high as um, the yields on bonds to make it an attractive investment, uh, like I mentioned before, as bonds are um, backed by the government and is generally risk-free. Okay, now, Shiro, let's summarise what we've covered in today's economic section. Um, yes. So when the question asked uh, how the markets will look through 2021, um, I said that it depends on sort of how fast the inflation will change. I believe we won't see a real impact on the sort of equity stock markets until we hit that 1.75% to 2% mark on the Treasury yield bonds. Uh, right now, we're around 1.4%. Uh, so we're not there yet to see sort of it affect the stock markets. And just to summarize also that UK inflations have also been rising with the US inflation. Oh, and also the pound has also broken resistance of 1.40. But I do see room for the short time, short term downside for the pound as well as inflation rises. Okay, thank you very much, Show. Um, that's been great. Thank you so much for coming on again, and we shall have you all next week. So moving on to today's political section, we are once again joined by four guests. Um, I am joined by James, Hugo, Max, and Joel. Hello to you all. Hello. And um, we're going to continue with a similar uh, format to last week's episode with lots of short punchy political debates. Um, Hugo, I'm going to come to you first. You have 30 seconds to start any debate about any topic you like. Go okay. ahead. So I think topically I'll, I'll pick COVID because obviously it's more relevant. So I just wanted to know everyone's opinions on 
maybe like a, a one to ten scale on on how you think the government's done during the pandemic overall, taking everything into account, vaccinations, everything. Hugo, can I ask for your one to ten rating? My one to ten scale would probably be about four. Okay, Hugo's uh, one to four. Do you want to yeah. develop on that? Or uh, well, yeah. Well, I think I, I don't think they've done as bad badly as other you know harsh critics have said they've done, but. You know, they screwed up with track and trace. They didn't, the, the start of the pandemic, we did not deal with well. And that ultimately led to us being the, you know, the highest, one of the highest in Europe. However, obviously the vaccinations have pushed the rating up a bit because we're far ahead of everyone else in, in, in Europe in terms of that. So, yeah. Okay, James, four out of 10, higher, lower or the same? I'd say a little bit higher, maybe five, maybe five and a half, I think. Just a little bit higher, um, go on. Right. Okay. I mean, personally, I don't think the government's done a great job. Um, like, I think that although they haven't done a great job, I think they need—they deserve a bit of credit. I mean, well, no, the vaccination program—I mean, the vaccination program has been—it's been amazing. I think. I mean, I'm hardly an advocate of Brexit, but I think that um, our access from the European Union has really, really helped push the vaccination drive. Um, but on the other hand. I mean, that, that kind of pushes my rating up, like probably about 2.5 points. But I think the actions in the summer were irresponsible. I think that um, I can't really blame them for locking down too late because they were it was unprecedented. They probably should have done it a week or so earlier. And I'm sure that made a big difference. But um, it, they were, it, was, it was unprecedented times. And now that they know the disease a bit better, I hope that they will make more responsible decisions, like, for example, not opening schools. I think that would be a stupid thing to do, um, opening schools now. Um, okay, yeah. fair enough. Joel? I think before the vaccination process, maybe a free, but that's really, like, brought up how well the country have dealt with it. The What you can say is that the furlough scheme and the vaccination, you, know, you have to credit the government for. But before that, it was really poor. And one of the main reasons why we were probably the worst country in Europe and why we dealt with it so poorly, the timings and everything, why we went into lockdown so late, why things were open too quickly. Yeah, yeah like a okay. four or five at the moment. Yeah. Um, Charlie, last week on the podcast, you said that um, the UK as a country were in a good state at the moment. Um, is this uh, down to a good handling of the coronavirus pandemic? I, I, I did say that. I, I did mull up my wording, though. I did. I did mean it in relative terms to the rest of the world. Um, I do slightly retract my statements. To be honest, it was probably not a correct statement to say. Um, my personal view of COVID is would generally probably be a pretty safe five slap bang in the middle. I think the vac, as we've alluded to, the vaccination pro process has been unbelievable. Um, I think. Again, being out of the EU um, and Brexit really did help that along as we would have been in the starting blocks of um, the vaccination process only a few weeks ago. I think now we've over 12 million vaccines, I think, 12 million vaccinations, which is monumental for the country. Um, I do think we should have locked down earlier. I think we should have seen um, what, what was happening in Italy, um, you know, how quickly the, the disease was spreading. And I think personally, I think Boris Johnson was the wrong man for the pandemic, in my opinion. I think because he's a bit more, has a bit more of the cavalier attitude. Is that compared. a white man for a pandemic? Well, I, I would, in my opinion, I think Theresa May would have been a good well, woman for the pandemic. But she's not a very good prime minister, but I think she would have been good for the pandemic because I think she would have, um, I think she would have locked down quick and I think she'd have been a bit more sort of conservative and uh, cautious in terms of, the way she had which she would have handled the virus but again you know it, it, it's a it's a tough one because again these were unprecedented times and i think it's very difficult to judge a government based on such extraordinary circumstances um a question to everyone a few shop and restaurant owners are calling for the return of the eat out to help out scheme what are your thoughts on this should the government go through with it or was it a mistake to introduce it in the first place back in what July was it, Hugo? Uh, I think, well, yeah, I think it was a mistake in the first place because that was what brought uh, the, the rise of cases in sort of September, October, and uh, what, what forced us to lock down again. I mean, obviously, it's it, we have to help businesses. Like, we can't let them all sink, but 
it has to be through a different way because it just encourages people to mix and 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 you know meet each other, which which obviously will in, increase cases. But um, no, I'm not sure what they'll do. But uh, Rishi Sunak needs to think of a, a plan to help the economy because uh, I don't think that was the right move at the time, and I don't think it should be brought back. Max. Um, I think the initial eat out to help out scheme was necessary because if we hadn't done that, we'd still be here now. I don't think we would have done it at all. And to keep these businesses afloat, it had to be introduced. Otherwise, when this whole thing is over, they wouldn't be able to get back up again. James? I mean, I don't know about you, but I I love the scheme. I think, I think we all did, you know. Using it to yeah, I enjoy it. It's not about us loving the scheme, James. It's the fact that we've had to lock down pretty tough. What was it? It was, yeah, pretty much made by August. Um, but in my opinion, I think it was necessary. It gave, I mean, not necessary, but I think it made a gave a much needed cash boost to these businesses, which were shut for so long. And it definitely got people out, which I think is what they wanted. But if we're talking about the public health perspective, from a public health perspective, from a public health perspective, I don't think it was the right thing to, to do because it got too many people out. But yeah. in my opinion, economically, it was clever and very nice. Okay, we're coming up to five minutes on that topic. Thank you very much, Hugo. Um, quick summary, who who's in agreement with Hugo that the, gov- the, the handling of the virus has been around a four out of 10, you know, pretty disappointing. All right, well, I just realized this is a podcast and you can't all see this, but I think we're all in agreement. Wait, no, all in disagreement. What am I talking about? Who who disagrees with Hugo? I, to a degree, disagree to an extent. I mean, better or worse than Hugo's evaluation? Well, I think they did better than Hugo's evaluation, yeah. Okay. All right, moving on. Uh, who should we have next? James, do you want to go? Okay. <laughs> no, don't have to. Well, okay. My question is: Have the conservative are the conservatives delivering, and have they delivered on their twenty nineteen election promises? Um, okay. Okay. So my opinion on this is that, I mean, their four main election promises were getting Brexit done, building a stronger NHS after ten long years of austerity, and building an Australian. Um, style immigration system, introducing that um, to control immigration into our country after our exit from the European Union and reaching net zero by 2050 and um, building on that and working towards that goal. Um, in the um, So the first goal, I mean, I'm sure you all probably know that on the 31st of January last year, I mean, the government, um, we exited the European Union. And they delivered on their biggest promise. They got Brexit done after four galling years of dither and delay. Um, and they now were out of the European Union and we can move on. So in my opinion, that was one of the, where they prevailed. Um, and on the, the second main aim, I think they, um, they aim to build a stronger NHS after, after austerity. I mean, at the moment, I think they're, they're doing... I think this the pandemic has really exposed um, yeah. care that our NHS really needs. Um, it needs a strong investment. It needs strong restructuring. I think that the government has um, is delivered. They've delivered that. I've just seen a few weeks ago. They they restructured the NHS, got rid of Public Health England, put the NHS in the hands of the government where it should be. Um, so you can really make sure that money is going to the front lines and to where the people need it. I mean. Yeah, and they also, I mean, the key, the key um, figures of this policy was that um, they aim to they aim to employ fifty thousand nurses by the end of the the five year term. Um, they're already a quarter of the way through, and we're not even a year, we're only just a year in. I think that kind of yeah. says it all, in my opinion. And it's a record high, record high. Okay, um, thank you for that, James. Joel, what, what what would you say in response to that? I think it's quite hard to judge their promises because they obviously didn't realise that we we're going to go into a global pandemic. But I think it's really um, exposed the Tory government that they that they and Boris Johnson that he's failed to act on a lot of stuff. And he 
at first really failed the NHS by not giving them the right PPE and not supporting them in the right way beginning of the pandemic when the World Health Organization were advising them to go into a lockdown they ignored it at first like Boris Johnson missed five Cobra meetings before the pandemic about the pandemic and there's only a couple of weeks before we went into lockdown that he uh, started to consider that we might be having like a really big problem so I on the like their promises I, I don't think it's fair to judge them because of the pandemic but I think that the pandemic has showed that there's a lot of gaps yeah, in the government definitely Charlie, as a Conservative Party member yourself, are you pleased with um, with how it's with how the political scene in this country has been since the twenty nineteen elections? Um, again, that's a pretty ambiguous question because obviously COVID has got in the way massively. But in terms of, as James said, getting Brexit done, I think we've done you know brilliantly as a government to to do that. I think Boris Johnson was the man uh, to get Brexit done. Um, I also think that you know funding the NHS as we have done uh, has been really important, and I, I think that you know I, I wouldn't say I'm, I'm a fan of Boris Johnson as such, but I but I'm very happy that Jeremy Corbyn is not in power. That's all I can say really about it. And I'm and, I'm, I'm, and I, I, I suppose once we get out of the pandemic, we can really truly see how how this Tory government is going to um, how it's going to perform in terms of. Uh, you know, uh, or how do I say it? Um, terms of, uh, I've forgotten the word. Um, I should. I've forgotten the word. Okay. Uh, just, just, just performing on their manifesto. Performing on their okay. manifesto. Yeah. Hugo, famously a non-Tory backer. What, what have you got to say? Uh, well, I mean, I, firstly, on getting getting Brexit done. I mean, yes, technically, it did happen. We did do a deal. However. As shown by many interviews with with lots of companies that work in and out of the UK, it shows that it was a, it was a terrible deal for the UK, and it, it will cost cost us billions a year because of. So did you see like a while ago when the trucks weren't being allowed into Calais, uh, the the to, to deliver and export and import goods, which is it's you know it's not good, and it's something that would not have been a problem if we were still in the EU, and I think that. You try not to judge it on the pandemic because everyone in the world has faced it. However, we have dealt with it so much worse than other countries, which shows that the incompetence of the Tory government and and its uh, its cabinet. It, it shows that I don't understand how none of none of them have resigned yet because they, they've all done terrible jobs, especially Gavin Williamson, you know, with the school. So I think that since since 2019, they they they've really not excelled at all. And they've obviously lost lots of points in the polls because of because of their handling. Um, I think also with the NHS, um, it, you know, the NHS is built specifically to help, you know, for a, a situation like COVID. And the fact that it was so under, you know, we were locking down because of the NHS, because the NHS couldn't handle the influx in, in people going to the hospitals. This shows that the government, you know, have failed to deliver. They failed to deliver with the PPE and they've they failed in general, I think, since since their manifesto. Max, anything quickly to add and then back to James? I think opening the schools was necessary because we live in a urban society where we're in a bubble and we can all accept that online school works. However, in rural um, locations such as Kent, people haven't been to school in eight months. They haven't been online school for eight months. They've missed a whole year of learning. You have to bring it back at some point. Otherwise, there are people who aren't learning anything. Yeah, big questions over how the education department has really worked these last few years. James, over to you to summarise, answer any points that have been made or just well, emphasize the first one. Hugo's, Tijima's, Hugo's comments. I mean, I think we can, we can diverge from the pandemic because we've spoken about that before. Um, but I agree with him. I think that the pandemic um, has really exposed the cracks that are in the NHS. But I think it's also very unfair to blame this current Conservative government for that, because it's a completely different government to what's been, who have been in power for the whole of the 2010s, who adopted that policy of um, 
adopted that policy of austerity, which tore NHS apart. And I think that the Conservative government, one of the first things they did when they got in, they passed that £34 billion spending bill on the NHS. And I think that just shows how committed they are. They are the party of the NHS. Okay. Thank you very much, James. Um, Again, let's do a little quick vote. All those who think that pandemic aside, as much as you can do that, have had a good start to their term in government. Charlie's got his hand up. Max has got his hand up. So has James. Joel and Hugo don't. Okay, thank you very much for that, James. Joel, should we come to you next? Yeah, sure. Um, Cos, do you think it's time for change in government? The, the Conservatives have been there for a number of years now. Do you think it's time that Labour get their turn? And do you think it'll be suit the country better? Okay, well, we're definitely seeing a growth in popularity in the polls. Um, would this be good for the country, uh, James? Um, no. Why? I mean, in my opinion, that there is a reason that the Conservatives have been in power of um, been in power for the last forty-four of seventy-five years. It's because they they serve the people. I mean, I mean, I'm a, I was a I mean, I personally think. I, I like Tony Blair. I like Tony Blair. Not a mass fan of Gordon Brown, but I think they did a great job. But I think for Labour to do work for the country, they need to move further to the centre and stop focusing on the flawed ideology of socialism um, and start start working start working for the people. Hugo, you, you could barely like stay in your seat whilst. Yeah, James is I mean, yeah, okay, James. If you're <laughs> you're saying that no, but then you're going, oh, I like Tony Blair. That that. This doesn't make any sense, James. Tony Blair was... Tony Blair's centre-right. There's no Tony Blair in the party right now. Keir Starmer no. is no Tony Blair. I mean, I would say that actually Keir Starmer is the closest uh, Labour leader to Tony Blair that they've had in, in a while. He's, mu- he's much further right... He's not right-wing, but he's much further right than, than Jeremy Corbyn, Gordon Brown. Um, he is. Uh, but anyway... Uh, everything that was in the 2019 Labour manifesto, which was... Which he, which Jeremy Corbyn himself claims was a radical socialist manifesto. And he still backs. Like, he had an interview two months ago. But I think, I think Jeremy Corbyn... Everything in that manifesto. And if that doesn't say that he's far, far left as Jeremy Corbyn, I don't know what does. He's not as far left as Jeremy Corbyn in, in any way. But I think, obviously, I mean, I know, I, I don't actually think Jeremy Corbyn would have been a good Labour leader, but I think he's a he's, he's a man of the people. He, he fights for, for, for what is right. Uh, um, and I think that a Labour government would uh, hugely benefit, uh, mainly lower class, not lower class, but working class people, um, if, if there was a Labour government, because it's just, the, the, there's obviously, a, obviously we know there's a clear divide in the, in the manifesto, it's very stark contrast, but I think that, you ultimately have to go with a government that will help the majority of the country. And I think a Labour government would do that. They would they would help increase, you know, social services, housing, you know, a housing crisis that the Conservatives have failed, failed, failed many people, many, many people in, in, the, in the years. Stuff like Grenfell Tower, you know, the, the cladding in, in those towers has still not been fixed. And the people at Grenfell, who were in Grenfell Tower, have still been ignored after that and i think that is i mean i know it's not a big issue but that's a massive failing of the conservative government and i think something that would be much rectified with a with a labor government charlie i think let's just talk about the 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 general election of 2019 right jeremy corbyn who is probably as far left um as the labor party has ever seen in terms of their leader labor are not the party of the working class why is that well in the in the red uh, heartlands up north and in the midlands they lost so many seats in wales they lost a lot of seats but they, they lost that's, seats because it's a clear rejection of socialism no it's not charlie no it's, it's not it, it's it's well labor did not focus enough on brexit in their manifesto of 2019 they did not focus enough it was a brexit election and they lost that I completely accept that they lost the Brexit election, but that is not why they lost voters. It's because people up north could see a clearer plan with Boris Johnson as leader in terms of getting Brexit done than they could with Labour because Jeremy Corbyn did not focus on this, which shows that 
not a failure in socialism, but it's a failure in 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 you know what the what the Labour government what the Labour Party were trying to do with their with their views on Brexit. Joel, uh, Joel. Well, can I just say something? Yeah. I was watching a quick video. I was watching a clip on YouTube um, and they were interviewing people um, after the general election in these constituencies that had been previously been red for so long who had now turned blue. And they were interviewing people who literally said, um, for 60 years, I would not have dreamed of voting Conservative, but yes. this election I did. Yes, that was because of the Brexit, Brexit Charlie. It's if you really, really, really... You can't just have just no, because it was a Brexit election, Charlie. That's literally what the main focal point of the election was. That was Boris Johnson's main talking point. He he had that on all of his signs in front of when he was doing his speeches. He said, get Brexit done. We're going to get Brexit done. That was his main selling point, his main talking point. You can't say it wasn't because it was. <laughs> what else was it if it wasn't well, Brexit? It was the main talking point, but certainly it wasn't the whole... It didn't encompass the whole of the... whole of the... Whole Not of the, the whole, but it was... The, <laughs> It's been nicknamed a Brexit election by many people, James. I think I think Next, Hugo's point is that I think I think I understand what you're saying. However, I also think that um, it was a rejection of the of the, the ideas of the, the far left, in my opinion. The the it was, I mean, the North especially. Um, they, if you're talking about the North in particular, they were not just. Um, compelled to vote Conservative by the fact that they voted Brexit and the Conservative Party was the only party in the election other than the Brexit Party, but they weren't really relevant for Brexit. Um, but as well, because they weren't drawn to the to the Labour elitist, um, like Labour leader, okay, we can look at Labour leaders. So um, Jeremy to hurry you up from, um, from North London. He'd, in, in no way did the, the Northerners feel any connection to him. Same as Keir Starmer, and that's why I don't think Keir Starmer is a, a good leader. He's gone up in the polls. So Keir Starmer, Keir Starmer. Joel, I'm going to come back to you. Just how beneficial would a Labour government be for the UK coming out of this pandemic? Extremely, the next extremely. Decade? Well, I think it's just nonsense. Why are we looking at Jer Jeremy Corbyn? Where everyone knows that he was a bad fit, he wasn't the best leader, but Keir Starmer appeals to far more people than Boris Johnson. And it's sort of like what happened in World War II to the Conservatives Labour. They said, well done, you've done the job, like in reference to COVID and Brexit, you've done it, but now it's time for Labour to take them into better days to apply to more people. And I think it's like Corona, the lockdown, has made more people, like, uh, they've appealed more to Labour because it's about freedom and, and about uh, equality. And the thing, like, there's so so much stuff that has happened recently that sort of means people are going to be more in favour of Labour. And I think Boris Johnson, like, keeps showing, apart from his vaccination programme, which I think is quite good, give him credit for that, that he's not a fit leader and that Keir Starmer is far more. Hold on, wait, Joel. I just James, James, to... James, James, we're going we're gonna to move on from that because we're running out of time. Thank you very much for that, Joel. I don't think there's any point in having a summary vote because I think we all know how that's going to go. Max, let's come to you finally. Okay, I'm going to veer away a bit from Brexit and COVID and Thank all you. that and go Thank for a general debate point. Um, I'm putting forward, do you think demand justifies the gender pay gap in certain situations? Very interesting. Okay, we're, we're moving away from all this talk about COVID because, quite frankly, I think we're all getting bored of it. Um, Hugo, should I come to you first? Yeah, I, I think that's a very, very interesting uh, topic that doesn't really uh, fit to, to party uh, divides. Uh, but I think that it's a very, obviously a very touchy subject because, you know, especially now more than ever in, in 2020 and 2021, it's, it is more, but much more activism to do with, you know, gender pay, the gender pay gap, you know, gender issues in general. And I think that I, I wouldn't say it does, you know, in, I wouldn't say that demand does justify the gender pay gap at all, because I think that in some, in some, you know, jobs that, um, that are more male dominated, that, that there's this this it's more of a gender pay gap because of because of the work that's being done and because of um just just yeah basically but like i think the jobs that there is there is a 
and let me rephrase this, there's a lot of, um, there is a, a stark gender pay gap in jobs that are most uh, are divided between men and women, which, uh, which is obviously an issue because I think that if they're doing the same job, they should be paid the same amount, obviously. But I think that, you know, it, it's interesting because for, for some jobs you could have more male, male applicants, for some jobs you could have more female applicants. And I just think that you need to look at each job and role in particular and see which person is better suited. And I think that it, should be, it shouldn't be based on gender, it should be based on skill and application on, on what these people are paid. It's not, it, I think gender should not even be accounted for in any way. Okay, well, what about shifting our focus to sports? Um, in the world of football, we all know how massive male footballers' paychecks are. You know, they're, they're paid just ridiculous amounts. You take the the highest paid female footballer in the world. I don't know who she is to the name, but she won't be paid anywhere near as much as the highest paid male footballer. But would it be viable? Would it be possible to pay these players the same amount considering how much bigger the men's game is to the women's game? I mean, that is kind of going off on a tangent, but... No, but I think, I think uh, yeah, it's valid. I think not at the moment, because I think where women, women football is growing... It is growing, but but it's not at the heights of male football, and it's it's not really about the clubs or the money in general. It's mainly about advertising. It's just that simply males, the male game is more advertised, it's more watched by by more people, and that's why they are paid more. And I think that as time goes on, there will be much more viewers of women in football, and it means that the the the, the wages will will increase. But I think yeah, in, in stuff like sport, I think there's a, there's an exception. Max, what's your response to that? Um, but I think that the demand is the justification for the pay gap. What you've just said is the justification because either you decrease the men's wages for the sake of making it equal, which I don't think works because then someone will always outpay you because they want the players or you raise the female wages, which just isn't possible because if you put the gave all the women males wages, hundreds of thousands a week for a whole team, that is well above the revenue teams generate. It's it's impossible, and it's not because football is a business at the end of the day, and they won't be making money if they do that, and they don't need to do that. Yeah, Charlie, I completely agree with Max on that point. I think again, do I accept do I accept that the gender pay gap is a, is a real thing? Absolutely, and do I accept that it's a bad thing? Absolutely, it is a bad thing. But I think in terms of this. Um, example in football, you know, it's all to do with supply and demand, right? And if you're not making, um, if a women's team isn't making anywhere near as amount of, amount of money as a men's team, then you can't pay them as much. And it also, interesting figures from the World Cup, um, the women's World Cup made 73 million pounds, whereas the men's World Cup made 4 billion pounds. So it, it all comes down to, you know, demand. And if if women can improve as football as footballers, then the the demand to watch them will increase. Therefore, we'll be able to pay them more. And then, how do we how do we do that? We provide opportunities for women to get more involved with the sport and encourage them to get in, to just get involved and try and improve, okay. which I think is the only way. I, I want to move away from the football example because this isn't just happening in the world of football. It is happening. Everywhere, you know, a female TV presenter will not be as paid as much as a male TV presenter. And you, the, the same case, what you just raised, cannot be the same in that situation there. Joel, what do you think about this? I think, yeah, when you take it away from sport, I think it's completely unjustifiable. Because when you're looking at sport, it's almost like it's two separate things, like women's football, men's football, which I don't think is personally a good thing, but it is a thing that women's football and men's football are like two different fields. Whereas being a lawyer or a banker, they're the same thing. They're doing the same job. So I don't think there can be any way that a woman can be excused to do the same, to get paid to do the same job as a man. Like it's just completely inexcusable. All right. Thank you very much. Um, Max, to summarize. Sorry. Out of sport, the demand isn't what justifies the paying. So it, that's, like away from my statement because I'm saying where demand matters in law or lawyer that or banks there isn't a demand to have male bankers but it's not just for males in modeling that um there's what's it called the women get paid a lot more than the men 
the tenth um, the tenth best paid woman model earn more than the best paid male model. So it's not just happening one way, it's happening both ways. And I think it's justified when demand is the controlling factor. Okay, I'm not going to take any more points on that because we have been recording for well over half an hour now. So it is time to wrap up. Max, James, Hugo and Joel, thank you very much for coming on. It's been really good to have you on. Um, yeah, thank you so much. Maybe we can have you on again sometime soon. Thank you very much. Well, that concludes the ninth episode of the Historic Present podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Some exciting news. We are now over on YouTube. You can find our channel at the Historic Present pod. Go give us a like and subscribe to the channel. It will really help us out. Thank you for listening and see you next episode.